Welcome to the My Opinion Podcast, the leadership podcast for women. This is a show that focuses on leadership, life, and love to empower women around the world to be the leader of their life. The My Opinion Podcast is a weekly show with Maya's Motivation Monday, focusing on leadership topics for women that feature guest interviews as well as solo episodes with Maya. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the My Opinion Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Now, in her opinion, here's your host, Maya Roffler. Welcome back to My Opinion and another episode of Motivation with Maya. I have an incredible guest here today. So excited to have her. I have Katika Roy with me today. She is a gender economist, which I think is so fascinating. We're going to talk about today, but also the CEO of Pipeline. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So excited to have you here. I want to dive right into it because we talk about leadership for women on this podcast in my opinion, and of course, my guest, in my guest's opinion. But this is so fascinating to me. You're a gender economist, so tell us what that is first, and then we're going to dive into it. Sure. So, what that uh, what a gender economist is is someone who looks at the economy through the lens of gender. So, in mostly men and women. If data was reported for non-binary, we would include that too. So there's a lot of uh, conversation around inflation right now and potential recession. So uh, actually looking at that data, for instance, uh, through the lens of gender to understand, for instance, is there a different inflation rate for women versus men? Are women impacted differently by a recession versus men? And it gives a very different lens on the economic data that we that we hear about. That's I'm so fascinated by this. This is so interesting to me. <laughs> so I mean, I think it's I think it's fascinating. I think it's interesting. It, so before we hit record, we were sure. chatting, of course. And so I want to dive into this. We were talking about how when you started in the workforce and when I, even when I started in the workforce, a lot of these things were not a thing, right? We weren't talking about this. Like we weren't talking about being a gender economist. We weren't talking about a lot of the things that happened to us when we stepped into the workforce as women. And so walk us down that journey, your journey a little bit and how this evolved for you. My in my journey in the workplace, yeah, and how you got got to be a gender economist and also the CEO of Pipeline. This is a very yeah. So, so I actually I, I will talk about that. I want to talk a little bit about. So there's two things that impacted me before I ever got to the workforce. And then I'll talk about my experience in, in the workforce. It won't take long for folks who are listening. But one is my family history, because that had a huge impact on me. And then my place in my family, and then ultimately my experience in the labor force. So, I, I, and again, I will tell this quickly, but I, I am the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee. And so my mom was born in 1939, the year that World War II began on the Isle of Guernsey, which is one of the British Channel Isles. And when France fell to the German army in, 20, uh, in 1940, Prime Minister Churchill doubted his ability to defend the Channel Isles, and so he evacuated them. And my mom was one of the children who was evacuated. She was 18 months old and separated from her mother and four siblings, placed into an orphanage and adopted a year later. And she would actually never see her own mother again and emigrated to the United States for equality and opportunity. 
My father was a refugee. He escaped from Hungary after the fall of the 1956 revolution. And his decision was difficult, not only because he risked his life, but also the lives of his three daughters, my three oldest sisters, who were three, seven, and eight at the time. And they, with the help of Hungarian freedom fighters, actually walked across minefield, crossed the border into Austria. And less than two months into their stay in the refugee camp, President Eisenhower sent Air Force One to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the United States on Christmas Day, 1956, and they were on that plane. So a lot of, you know, my uh, perspective on the labor, on the workforce started before I actually ever got there by who I was raised and watching my parents and, and the values that they had given me. The second uh, piece is my place in my family. So I'm the youngest of six children, five girls. And a lot of what Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg fought for in her career were things that I saw play out in my family. So things like women couldn't get a business loan without a male co-signer. Women couldn't get a credit card without a male co-signer. Women couldn't get housing without a male co-signer. These are all things that were legal in my lifetime. And I watched these barriers to economic opportunity impact not only my sisters, but also their children and their families. And I was very aware of that going into the workforce. So how I so how I actually ended up here is that I uh, have a, two master's degrees and an undergraduate degree. My undergraduate degree is is in political science, and I spend a lot of time. I spent time on economics. I spent time on public policy, and I learned about women's rights. And then when I got into the workforce, I thought, well, I don't know that this really applies anymore. And then you fast forward to when my daughter was born and I was on maternity leave with my daughter and my boss was optimized, which is a fancy word for fired. And a day after I got back from maternity leave, I was asked to take on a new team. I already had a team I was managing. So that, that's great. That's great opportunity. And then two weeks later was asked to take on a third team. And that is great opportunity, particularly for a sole breadwinning mom uh, for a family of four, but it didn't come with any pay adjustments. And my male colleague had taken on one additional team. He was also one pay grade higher than I was and received additional compensation for that new team. And I received nothing. Now I had been a, a litigation paralegal. That was my first job out of college. It's proved to be incredibly helpful. <laughs> And so I thought, well, there's got to be something that makes this illegal. And I was trying to have a conversation with HR and my uh, new manager, really to no avail. And what I found was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. And that changed the statute of limitations for equal pay from when the pay decision was made to every time someone is paid inequitably, the statute of limitations starts over. And so I called HR and said, this is a Lily Ledbetter issue. Every time you pay me, the statute of limitations starts over. What do you want to do about it? And now to their credit, they increased my pay, increased my level and give me back pay. But what occurred to me was why did I have to spend my time researching my rights in order to be treated fairly? And it really was in that moment that my commitment to end, ending the gender equity gap solidified and my, my journey to founding Pipeline actually began. Wow. 
Thank you so much for sharing. You have to share that entire story. I totally understand now because there's so much to unpack there. So thank you again for sharing that. Of course. And I knew as you were going along, I'm like, let me guess, she didn't get a pay raise. And there's a male colleague somewhere in there that did. And I can relate to you because I've shared some stories with my amazing audience where similar things happened to me even very early on in my career. So I can relate to that. Hey everyone, it's Maya, the host of the My Opinion Podcast, the leadership podcast for women. I hope you're enjoying this incredible episode of the podcast. Now you can learn more about leadership and how to be the leader of your life. You can click on the show notes right now and download your guide on how to be the leader of your life written by me, Maya Roffler. We'll go over the four pillars of how to be the leader of your life. We'll review your values, your mission, not only your purpose, but your purposes and your vision. So download the guide right now and enjoy the rest of this podcast episode. But wow, what an incredible family story you have too. That's very inspirational. So yeah, I can understand how that would inspire you to get to where you are today. And I mean, yeah, we shouldn't have to pull up the research, fight for that, but here we are doing that. So that brings you to today being a gender economist and also a CEO. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I, uh, I, I do two things. They're connected. Uh, one is a fair amount of thought leadership. Uh, so byline speaking, television, et cetera, uh, talking about the the economy through the lens of gender. There's a lot of talk about recession and inflation, et cetera. So I published an article with Fortune recently about what that looks like through the lens of gender. So I spend a fair amount of time uh, doing that. And that is also connected to the company that I founded, Pipeline. And what Pipeline does is actually augment uh, people decisions in companies. We work with, mostly with um, enterprise companies. We're backed by both Accenture and Workday. And we get in front of the five key decisions that companies make about their people. So internal hiring, which is often ta- called uh, mobility, pay, performance, potential, and promotion. Excuse me. And what we do is uh, run those decisions before they're made through our algorithms. And we, if we find any inequity, we make recommendations. So to, so to tie it back to my personal story of fighting to be paid equitably, had the company that I worked for actually had pipeline, I never would have been in that position because the pipeline platform would have told my manager and HR, hey, Katika's got a pay equity gap. And here is the range that you that, you know that you need to be within in order to be uh, to pay her equitably. And just think about that from an employee experience, right? So we know that ninety six percent of CEOs put equity in their top priorities, but only twenty four or excuse me twenty two percent of employees regularly see it shared and measured. So what you're talking about that seventy four point gap, and so. Think about the experience, a very different employee experience where actually a company that is committed to equity, employees actually experience that commitment in the decisions that are made about their careers. 
That's huge. I mean, wow, how powerful. I mean, that's incredible. And obviously it totally relates to your experience, your story again, but what are you seeing? I mean, obviously you're working with some heavy hitters, Accenture. I mean, that's huge. Um, what are you seeing as far as results? I mean, the companies that are actually using pipeline and I mean, you know, yeah, to your point, a lot of companies are saying, yeah, it's really important to us, but who's actually doing it? There's a small percentage, right? You gave us those yeah, stats. Yeah, Very yeah, important. yeah, so, um, yeah, for sure. So I think I want to mention one thing about pipeline and then I'll answer your question. Yeah. One is that pipeline actually comes from the perspective of equity not as the right thing to do, though it is, but actually equity is a massive economic opportunity. So we started with research and we did a research study across 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And what we found was that for every 10% increase in, in intersectional gender equity, so gender plus race and ethnicity and age, there's a one to 2% increase in revenue. That's the model of our platform. So you you asked me what results have we seen. So on average, our customers actually increase equity by 67% in the first three months on the platform. And what that looks like, just to kind of break down that math, is this. We have found through our implementations that there are three key decisions that companies make across their talent each year. Which, um, which are performance, potential, and pay. So for the average Fortune 500 company that has 60,000 employees, that's 180,000 opportunities to move toward equity each and every year. That's what we make possible. And it's all of those small decisions taken together that lead to that 67% on average. Yeah, that's huge. And those numbers are, I'm all about numbers. <laughs> so yeah. that is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, w- I would never have guessed that you were all about numbers. Yeah. <laughs> no, those are huge. I really was just curious about that. And, you know, I just look back on my time in, in corporate America, and I'm sure a lot of you listening, if you're in corporate America now or transitioning out, you think about that and you think about the times when, you know, your CEO, EVP, whoever it was, right, was talking about equity and thinking about, you know, putting those people in strategic positions, but there really was no plan, right, or strategy behind it. And that's why I think what you're doing is so incredible because there's actual strategy behind it. There's numbers behind it. Um, there's results behind it. And I think that's what really matters. It's not like, okay, we have, I worked, I come from corporate retail, which I know I shared with you. And so, you know, we have 60 district managers. We need, you know, 20% of them to be female or whatever it was, right? And they just stick them there. There was no strategic plan behind it. So this is actual results. I think this is um, incredible and it's strategic. And I think that's really important. And what I think you said is is just so key here is that there's numbers behind it resulting in, obviously we all want profit, right? We all want to make money. And I always knew that worked, right? When we have different people from different ethnicities, gender, culture, all of those things, it works. But when you have the numbers behind it to prove it, it's a game changer. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it it really, uh, it, it changes. So there's a couple of reasons why it's important. The first is, is that it, it changes the narrative from the right thing to do, which in business, <laughs> no offense, I mean, it's a more capitalist society. So, uh, so it uh, can, can be optional, particularly in downtimes. So that's one. The second is, 
uh, in changing the narrative from a social issue or the right thing to do to an economic opportunity, when we change, when we look at things through a different lens, in this case, an economic opportunity, it changes the solutions that we look for, right? So as one example, uh, companies have uh, sort of, em they spend eight, embrace this idea of implicit bias training. So on average, they spend $8 billion a year on implicit bias training. It's well-intended, but if you're looking at how to deploy your capital for results, it's one of the worst things you can invest in. And it also, to folks who are underestimated and therefore underrepresented, feels like checkbox diversity. You know, we got it, we went, we put everyone through, we're going to check that box. The issue with implicit bias training is it, it doesn't work and it can actually make inclusion and diversity worse because it reinforces stereotypes. So there's a much better way, especially when you look at it through the economic lens, to look for solutions. And in particular, what Pipeline does is we're not, all we're doing is just ensuring equity through the decisions you're already making versus yet another program you have to put in place. Yeah. I want to ask your opinion because that's what we do on the show. I want to ask your opinion about this as well. I'm so, again, so fascinated by this, living it and watching it. What do you think about companies that have an actual department for this diversity and inclusion in their company? What do you, what's your opinion on that? And does it work? It depends. I mean, that's really the answer. Uh, mm -hmm. It depends on a couple of things. It depends on who the chief diversity officer reports to. So the chief diversity officer should report to the CEO. This should be a CEO priority. Without that, uh, they don't have the political capital typically to, to really make their charter a reality. So there's a, it's a huge charter to, to uh, ensure inclusion, equity, belonging, diversity in a company. And without reporting to the CEO, you really don't have that level of commitment and political capital. The other piece I would say is that typically... They also don't have access to data and to technology. And really, if you're going to move, uh, if you're going to move toward in inclusion, you're going to move toward equity, you need to have tech, you know, tech technical systems that can actually move you uh, just like just like we don't manage our people on paper, right? We manage them in technical systems. We need to do the very same thing for inclusion as well as data, right? So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love that answer because I know that was a huge thing that happened, right? When we started to bring awareness to diversity and inclusion. So companies started hiring this position. Yeah. And I was curious about your opinion about where it this one of the highest turnovers. If you look at turnover, yeah. If you look at turnover, uh, so it is a huge increase in terms of the number of chief diversity officer positions has increased substantially and the turnover is very, very high. And the reason why that turnover, one of the main reasons why that turnover is very, very high is because of what I talked about. They have a huge charter and not typically, not a lot of political capital and budget in addition to access to data and technology to actually make their charter a reality to move toward equity. So, you know, it's like pushing a rock uphill, basically. 
Yeah. And I'm actually thinking back through the ones that I've known and interact with. And now that I own my own company and the companies I work with, and I'm like, hmm, interesting because that does check all those boxes. I have seen that happen. So it's interesting. Yeah. But your recommendation is that they'd have a direct line to the CEO. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and if you think about it, right. So if you look at intersectional gender equity through the lens of an economic opportunity, then this is, becomes a very important lever for CEOs to pull to, to uh, maximize shareholder value, which is their number one job. So it makes sense, not only from a political capital perspective, but also doing right by your shareholders, whether or not you believe in stakeholder capitalism, but simply your shareholders to have the chief diversity officer report to you. Yeah. Great. Thank you for talking about that. I think that's really important because I think all of you guys listening, we're becoming more and more aware of this position. And I think it's something to talk about, especially with you. This is what you do. So I think it's important. A couple of questions I want to ask you too. So what is next for Pipeline? I want to know a little bit more about where you guys are going. And also, if you could tell my audience too, it sounds like you guys work with some really big companies, but do you work with smaller companies too? So if you could kind of answer those two questions for us. Yeah, so I'll answer the second one first, and then I'll talk about a little bit about what's coming up next. So we typically do not. We typically work with enterprise companies, so those that have 10,000 employees or more. What we have found uh, in the marketplace is that that's really the sweet spot that where, where folks need a solution like ours and can leverage it in the best way possible. So that's the uh, market that we that we target. And what's next for us? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I can't say too much, but I can say we, you know, we've got some interesting original research that we will be releasing as well as um, as some uh, technical advances, which we're very excited about. That's very exciting. Well, the world of technology in general is just always growing. So I'm sure you have yeah, so much coming down. Changing, for sure. But, but yeah. we will be making announcements soon. That's so exciting. Well, then stay tuned and watch you. So I want to ask you, especially ask you as a gender economist and your incredible backstory before we close this out, what advice would you give my incredible audience? Just, I mean, I'm sure you have so much to unpack, but what advice would you give women as they're stepping into leadership? Like, what are some things you wish you knew as you were going through this incredible journey to become a CEO? And a gender economist. What what are some things you wish you knew, or some one big thing? It's hard to distill it down to one. Yeah, I'll tell you a couple of stories. I, the one thing that I would say, particularly if women are stepping into leadership, is that leadership can be lonely no matter who you are, but it's particularly lonely if you're female because there are fewer of us. So my recommendation, which has been very useful for me, is to find women who are at or above the level that I am at, that I can actually talk to about what it's like to be a woman in leadership and not women's leadership training, not that, but really like friends who like, Hey, you know, what's that like? I think, um, the, you know, I started in the, in the workforce almost 30 years ago. And I talked a little bit about that journey, but what I remember is the first time I heard 
the word mansplaining, I was like, oh, like a light bulb went off. I thought, oh, that's what it is. Because I could never figure out when I would sit in men's offices who were more senior than I, than I was, why they were explaining something to me and why they didn't think I knew this, whatever it was, this thing. I have an MBA, a, you know, software engineer, et cetera. And when I heard the term mansplaining, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. I think the thing, and, and what I will tell you is that that experience and obviously what I do for a living, I have a daughter who's 11 and that uh, has changed the way that I raise her. That is to understand that it's when she experiences bias or inequity, it's not because she has done something wrong or she is not good enough, but rather that's on the other person. So to both recognize that and then have the tools for how to deal with that. I'll give you one example. One of the things that we have taught her is that her words have value and she's not to be interrupted. And so when she's speaking, because women are more likely and girls to be interrupted when they're speaking, if somebody interrupts her, she will say, excuse me, I'm speaking. And she will say it until the other person stops. She doesn't just say it once. She continues on because she understands one, she's been taught to recognize that, you know, if someone interrupts her, that's not to happen and been armed with the tools of how do we actually uh, deal with that when it happens. And I think that's a really key thing. We, for a long time, and I was raised this way too, have taught our girls that if they work hard and do well in school, they can be anything they want to be. And while that's really well-intended, it's not true. We're misleading them. And so when they get to the workforce and they see some of these biases, unpaid work at work, being interrupted, someone taking your idea, et cetera, you know, on and on and on, they think it's them and that they have done something wrong. And that is not true. <laughs> you have done nothing wrong. So really being able to recognize bias and have you know tools in your tool belt that you can actually use just in time is really, really important. I mean, so much advice there. That just packs such a punch. I love that you're teaching your daughter that. I think that is incredible advice. And it took me until my 30s <laughs> to learn that because I constantly thought, so please put that in your tool belt, guys. Like as you're listening to this, like so much information here that is useful. And I see women go their entire lives thinking that and believing that and constantly brewing. And I have to still train myself about that. And remember yeah. when I'm dealing, because I deal with a lot of men, you deal with probably even more men than I deal with, right? And you know, it's something that we have to remember. You're absolutely right. It's not about me at all, you at all. It's it's them. And it's something that, you know, I love that you're teaching your daughter and we have to continue to teach them. And I when I say them, our daughters that are coming up, but also it's we gotta bring awareness to the men too. Like that's another For mission. Sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that and I think. You know, I would say the other thing is that implicit bias or how our brains work, it, it, you know, it is schema, right? So there's essentially patterns that we create. And so one of them is around women. And when we see 
a woman, we immediately attach that. So I, this is not about like men are bad, women are good. That's not at all what I'm right. saying. It's rather, how do you deal with situations in which you are experiencing that? If you'll just let me, I will tell two quick things when I love it. Really, particularly when folks have said, Katika, you're difficult, <laughs> you're aggressive or it's okay. I get that too, Kataka. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and, and I will. And so there's two things that, uh, depending on the situation, some, you know, but if I sort of need to do it softly, but still address that issue, depending on the situation. One of them is that when Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren was running, when she, when she was running for president and she suspended her campaign, a reporter asked her if the reason that she suspended her campaign was because of sexism. And she said, that's a trick question. Because if I say yes, I'm a whiner. And if I say no, about a billion women on this planet will say, what planet are you living on? So that's one that I have used in those situations. The second one is uh, Jane Goodall, who says, who has said that it doesn't take a lot to be considered a difficult woman. That's why there are so many of us. I love that one. I know that one. I love that one. <laughs> and, and when, you know, when you're, someone's giving you feedback, right? I've said, okay, well, let me address it this way. And then folks get it in a way that puts the spotlight off of you onto someone else. They kind of laugh and then they'll deal with the issue. Yeah. I love that. Remember that, ladies listening. Yeah, it's okay to be difficult. I think it's okay to be difficult. I don't mind being called that anymore because I don't think I'm being difficult. I think I'm I'm being strong. I think there's there's real terms for it. I don't think I'm being difficult. I think I'm being strong. I think I'm standing my ground. I think I know what I want. Fill in the blank. I'm not being yeah. difficult. So difficult, aggressive, pushy, bossy, those are all gendered gender bias coded words, you are not being difficult. Like you are not period point blank. Like you own your worth and you're asking for what you deserve. Right. So, and we do not expect women to do that. We expect women to be so grateful for the positions that they have, that they are just so, so excited to have, you know, thrilled and excited to have a seat at the table. And I think well, I didn't get the woman's MBA. Right. I got an MBA. Right. So I have every right to be at this table. There is, just because you do not value me equitably, that is not my problem, right? And I am not going to diminish myself to make you less, you didn't make you more comfortable. Like that's not my problem. So well put. I had a lot of issues with that, like thinking about that and getting my head around that. And then once I got past that and started my own companies, it was, you know, going in and, you know, fighting for my worth and my contracts. And once I got past that, you know, I had to get over those things. And, you know, yeah, sometimes they'll act like that, right? Like, oh, you should just be happy to be working with me. And I loved what you said earlier, and then we'll we'll close, but um, sure. about having women that are, you, you know, a little bit further along as your mentors and your guide, 
So important. So key. Like I loved that, you know, piece of advice because that has been, they're my, they're my people. They're my people I go to and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so frustrated or I had a win or like, it's the positive, the negative, the in-between, the wins, all of that. So, um, oh, that's been so important in my, my journey. So I love that you brought that up. I was like, oh, she does that too. That's amazing. <laughs> that's so important. Um, for you need confidants who are going through the same things that you have gone through. Yeah. And I would encourage women to, to not get mentors, but to get sponsors because mentors often assume that you don't have the experience. Sponsors will put their name behind you to make sure that you get opportunity. Another great piece of advice. Oh my gosh. I love that. Sponsors. I just got chills with that one. That's a good one. Kataka, where can we find you? I know you do a lot of TV segments. You were mentioning that. <laughs> um, so where can we watch more of you, connect with you? Tell us, tell us where we can find yeah, you. Yeah. So uh, my website is Kataka, K-A-T-I-C-A-R-O-Y.com. So you can find me there. Um, and my handles are the same first and last name on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Uh, so that's the best place to find me. Perfect. And we'll tag it in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you so much for all your information today and your wealth of knowledge and being a gender economist. This is so cool. And a good luck with the future of Pipeline. And thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And thank you guys so much for listening to my opinion. We'll see you back here next week. Thank you so much for listening to the My Opinion Podcast. You can catch up on past episodes on the My Opinion Podcast website at www.myopinionpodcast.com as well as read the My Opinion blog and contact Maya directly with your questions. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at My Opinion Podcast and Maya Roffler. We'll see you back here next week.